Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, we have of course been going through the book of First Peter, and over the last couple of weeks we've, we've been in a section in First Peter dealing specifically with the resurrection and all of the, the things that, that Jesus accomplished in the resurrection, his, ex, his exaltation after the, excuse me, the resurrection and his defeat of all powers and authorities at that exaltation as well. Uh, but I thought we would um, take a break from 1 Peter this morning, turn our attention to this simple passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll look this morning at just uh, verses 8 and 9. This is what the Apostle Paul is writing to, if you will, his partner in ministry, his younger partner in ministry and and these are kind of his, some of his final words uh, to give to Timothy. And, and when we look at verse 8, uh, this is what Paul says, writing, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, beginning in verse 8 to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Let's go to the Lord uh, together in prayer. Father, we are incredibly grateful for the mighty work that you have done in raising Jesus from the dead. And Lord, most especially, this, this is a message that, that all of Christianity is based around, that, that our whole lives are, are rooted in. Every hope we have for the future, every decision we make even now in glorifying you with our lives is made and is hoped for because of the resurrection. And that apart from this work, all of the gospel is meaningless. Lord, I pray that we would never take the resurrection for granted, that it would not be just some holiday. We would recognize it for what it is, that we would heed the words of Paul to Timothy, that we would remember Christ who is risen. And that as we know, through the resurrection, all of history has been changed. Death itself, which, which ruled undefeated throughout the world for so long, has now been conquered. The beginnings of a new creation have started. Because of the resurrection, Lord, all things have changed. And they change even for how we are to live now in this life in anticipation of the great resurrection to come. I pray, Lord, that each one of us here would know Christ and the power of the resurrection and that you, by your Spirit, would work the same power of the resurrection within the lives of dead sinners, that you would cause them to, to come alive, perhaps for the first time. Lord, teach us and speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Towards the end of his life, the English Puritan Richard Baxter 
published a, a book of poems that in very memorable ways explained and taught the Christian faith and many other aspects of the Christian life and ministry. Baxter's works are some of the most fruitful and helpful works a person can read, particularly probably his most well-known work. It's called The Reformed Pastor. And part of what makes his writings so good and wise and helpful is that Baxter lived and ministered with a keen sense of eternity. He understood the importance and the seriousness of the gospel in light of the reality of eternity. In fact, in his letter that is addressed to the reader of this particular book, Poetical Fragments, when I was reading through it, I was struck by how he signed the end of that letter. At the end of it, one reads... August 7th, 1681, London, at the door of eternity, Richard Baxter. This same sense of eternity is also found in one of his poems where he describes the seriousness with which he took his own preaching ministry of the Word of God. He always had a sense of the nearness of death and that for everyone, eternity was only a breath away. And he wrote of his approach to preaching in this way. He said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. Oh, how should preachers men's repenting crave who see how near the church is to the grave? And then further on he says, Surely God's messenger, if any man, should speak with all the seriousness he can, who prevail with sinners now or never as those that must be saved now, if ever. It is when a man's words are spoken with a view to eternity that they will carry the most weight. It is often when a man is near to death that he speaks with a sense of urgency and importance that perhaps he's never spoken with before. These are his last words. What he's going to say, he wants to make sure, are the most important words that he can say. With Baxter, this was not just an end-of-life approach. This was how he lived. This was how he preached. I think we could say probably the same thing about the apostles of Jesus Christ. Baxter was, in essence, just following the example that they had set forth in Scripture, in their own life and ministry. Their lives were lived with a view of eternity. And we find that this was especially the case for the Apostle Paul in this second letter that he writes to Timothy. His life at this point is not only lived in light of eternity, but he knows that he's not going to be alive very much longer. This is very, very really the case that he is coming to the end of his days. He is imprisoned at this point. He is older now. He says of himself at the end of this same letter in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. His death is fast approaching. 
So the instructions that he gives to Timothy are very literally the words of a dying man to dying men. It's as if he is speaking here from his deathbed. And when we lean over to hear what his last words would be, we know that these words, perhaps more than any others, are his most important, some of his last words. As the time comes when he will no longer be able to speak at all, what is the most important thing for him to say? What does Timothy need to hear? What do we need to hear? What we find, really throughout this letter, but especially here in our verses, is that Paul does not have some new insight to give, or some new piece of revelation and wisdom that he wants to bestow upon the world before he departs. He doesn't have some breakthrough method of evangelism to give. He doesn't have a revolutionary church growth method. He doesn't have some new strategy for changing the culture that he can tell to Timothy and then Timothy can put into practice and all the world can just become a a better place just like that. Now what does he say here? It's nothing new. It's actually quite old what he says. The same message that he's been preaching from the beginning. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. There are no more important words that can be said. Remember Christ. Remember the resurrection. There is no greater piece of advice. There is no counsel, no wisdom, no teaching that can be given that ever surpasses this. This is the height of all knowledge, wisdom, and reality that Jesus of Nazareth, the promised offspring of David, crucified on behalf of sinners, is not dead. That He got up from the tomb and walked out and has arisen and has been exalted and seated at the right hand of God. That's reality. That is the truest truth that can ever be uttered. The King reigns from the throne. And he says to Timothy, you remember that. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is the foundation of the whole of Christianity. The death of Christ followed by the death of death in the resurrection of Christ. As John Owen had once said. When Paul speaks of Christ risen from the dead here, he does not mean in any way that this was only some kind of spiritual resurrection. He is not speaking here using metaphors. He is not conveying myths and legends and attaching some deeper philosophical meaning to them. He's not referring to pagan stories of pagan gods fighting and dying and rising again. And as that happens over and over, this is what explains all of the various cycles of the earth and the seasons and the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, he is not teaching 
the paganism of his day. There is, there is not here some transcendent truth that we are to discover, to discover or some deeper hidden meaning that is within his words. His claim and the claim of all of Scripture and the message that we preach and the message that we stake our lives upon and the message that our soul hopes in that Jesus of Nazareth, very man of very man, very God of very God, died at the hands of wicked men, was truly buried in a tomb and rose from the grave bodily. As we read earlier from the Gospel of John, that He rose in such a way that you can touch Him. He's alive in that sense. He's not just a thought. He's not just a, a vain hope of some better reality or existence out there. He rose from the grave in bodily. We are not to be embarrassed by this claim. We are not to be ashamed of this in any way. We are not to be shaken when the world shouts and laughs and mocks and tells us that this could never happen. This is scientifically and biologically impossible. Yes, we know that. We know that dead people don't live again unless the power of God is at work. We are not to be convinced that this was just some ancient story that ancient people told and that only ancient people could ever believe because we modern men have progressed far beyond believing in what is scientifically impossible. The claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, friends, was as foolish and as unbelievable a claim then as it continues to be now. Even the Athenian Areopagus, a place that loved to speak and hear of something new, a place that at the time prided itself upon embracing all forms of the wisdom of the world. When when, when Paul is preaching in Athens before all of these lovers of philosophy and knowledge and they hear him preach about the resurrection, this even to them was unbelievable. And they mocked him for it. The message of the resurrection has always been too outlandish, too radical, too obviously false to be believed by the world. And yet it is that very same message that the Apostle Paul says here in 2 Timothy, I am not ashamed of. And he says to Timothy, you remember this. Do not depart from this, Timothy. Do not modify it. Do not stray from it. Do not weaken it or update it. Do not tweak it. You remember Christ risen from the dead. And in the context here, there, there's two threats that he instructs Timothy in particular to be on guard from related to the preaching of the resurrection of Christ. One has to do with what I just mentioned. The, the threat of turning the resurrection into nothing more than a spiritual message. Some allegorical or metaphorical message. This had already begun in, in Paul's day. Further down in verses 16 to 18 of this very same chapter, Paul warns in, in these verses, he says, but avoid irreverent babble, 
for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection, and here referring to the the final resurrection of all believers that follows the resurrection of Christ, saying that the resurrection has already happened. These two irreverent babblers, these false teachers that he singles out, had turned the resurrection into nothing more than some spiritual idea. And no doubt they had probably twisted the Apostle Paul's teachings about the work of the Spirit in regenerating sinners and uniting them to the resurrection of Christ even now. But of course, Paul does not speak of the spiritual resurrection of once dead sinners as an end in and of itself, but rather as a foretaste and a guarantee of the bodily resurrection that is to come. That is to say that when Paul is speaking about believers being made alive in Christ, he is no doubt speaking about that spiritual work that takes place within the heart of a person. But again, that is just the first fruits of what is to come. It is the inner man that gets renewed first by the Spirit. And that renewal of the inner man is then reached. It reaches a climax in the bodily resurrection when Christ returns. But these false teachers here had, had reduced the resurrection to purely a spiritual one. And still, not even spiritual in the sense that Paul would, would mean spiritual. And yet this very same kind of heresy was going on then is not confined just to the false teachers of the ancient church. This very same kind of thing has continued down even to the modern church. The early liberal Christians of the 19th and 20th century denied, of course, all of the supernatural miracles of Scripture. And thus, in the words of J. Gresham Machen, they made of the word resurrection just what the word resurrection emphatically did not mean a permanence of the influence of Jesus or a mere spiritual existence of Jesus beyond the grave. That is not resurrection in any sense of the word biblical. Even more recently, I've heard the heirs of liberal Christianity, so-called progressive Christians, Speak of the resurrection as if it is an allegory of a person who's newly discovering themselves and learning that they are meant to be just who they truly are. They are resurrected as they finally come to the realization that they are just fine exactly as they are and that God accepts them just as they are. Whatever vague gibberish is made to mean, it most certainly does not mean what the Bible means when speaking of resurrection, which is that Jesus Christ actually and literally and historically in time rose from the dead. And any departure from this basic fact, as the Apostle Paul calls it, is a swerving from the truth. Any modification of resurrection that deviates from the literal, historical claim that Jesus is literally alive is an abandonment of the Gospel and the creation of a new kind of Christianity that does not save. But additionally, Paul also warns not only against distortions of the gospel and distortions of the resurrection, he also warns against cowardice and embarrassment 
on the part of Christians when it comes to this doctrine. He tells Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy, of course, had seen how the world responded to the preaching of the resurrection through in ridicule, no doubt he himself had faced the very same kinds of things. No one wants to be despised. There's no pleasure that comes from having people look at you and treat you as if you're the scum of the earth on the one hand or just some crazy lunatic on the other. And so there can be a real temptation to be silent to modify the gospel or to compromise in some way so as not to face the scowls of the world. Paul tells Timothy here, do not be ashamed. In chapter 2, verse 15, as, as he exhorts Timothy to continue teaching and preaching these fundamental truths of the gospel, to, to remind the church of these things, he says. He goes on to say, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You plant yourself firmly in the word of God, Timothy. You stand on it as the only sure foundation. You take His Word and you proclaim it as a prophet who is compelled to speak the words of God and you do not be ashamed. I think it's worth remembering as well that the potential for cowardice and shame can come as a result of the Gospel of Christ and the message of the resurrection being a threat to the world. It's easy to think of the resurrection as all good news. Who in their right mind would not rejoice over this? How could you be upset over the message of the resurrection? This is great news, is it not? A man has defeated the grave. The hope of, of eternal life has, has been secured. How can this not be nothing but Good news. Let's not forget, friends, that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He says in verse 9 that it is because of the preaching of this very gospel that he is suffering bound with chains as a criminal. It was the preaching of the resurrection that landed the other apostles in jail not long after Pentecost. And it was the preaching of the resurrected Christ that was the reason why many of them and many other Christians like them would ultimately be killed. The resurrection of Christ is a dangerous doctrine to the world because it unequivocally proclaims that everything Jesus said of Himself, that He is the Son of God, that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Him, that He will judge the living and the dead, that sin is worthy of death, and that having accomplished the will of His Father, He is glorified at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The resurrection unequivocally proclaims that all of this is true. And you have Jesus is the King. And because of that, there is no greater authority than Himself. No government, no state powers, no individual has a higher authority than the risen King. Not even death itself could defeat Him. And therefore, not even the greatest powers on earth can thwart His will. And as a result of His resurrection and exaltation, 
He commands all people now everywhere to repent and to bow the knee to Him as Lord. Whether you are a lowly peasant who is unnamed in the world, or you are Caesar Himself, Jesus demands as King absolute obedience and submission to Him. That is not a message that the world delights to hear. Men want to be their own lords, their own kings. They want to rule over their own so-called autonomous selves. The gods that they worship or the philosophies that they embrace are only such that they can mold them and shape them in their own image. I mean, do you, do you know many philosophies out there which are embraced, which actually put a check on someone's behavior they do not want? The morality that the world embraces is not a morality, is not an ethic that has come to them from on high. That is the one they've rejected. The one that individuals and societies and cultures embrace in rebellion to God is the one that they deem suitable for themselves. And thus they've made themselves their own king. But the resurrection of Christ takes aim at all of these idols and demands absolute obedience to the risen King Jesus. This is in fact the same exact logic of Paul when it comes to the resurrection. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, when he was preaching in Athens, he says there, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection is God's testimony to all people all over the world that Jesus Christ is King and all will have to give an account to Him. Again, that is not what sinful man wants to hear. And so, the resurrection can be and is a very dangerous message. Threatening. Yet, as Paul says again, we are not to be ashamed. And we are not to be ashamed because especially for we who believe in Christ, the resurrection is God's sure testimony to us that His will, a will that we have come to know and embrace and love because of the grace of God, His will will ultimately wins. He has won. He is the victor. And he will be the victor for all eternity. I love what Paul says at the end of verse 9 here. He says, all, all throughout this letter, he's been speaking about his imprisonment, his, his sufferings, his being bound with chains and one would think that, that imprisonment would, would be a great hindrance to the spread of the gospel. We want to be able to travel freely and preach and teach the Word of God wherever we want, whenever we want. And if we're imprisoned, well, that would just seem like ministry could not go on. 
any longer. The world would win. God may want us to go and make disciples of all nations, but we would just have to say to the Lord, I'm sorry. I can't. I'm bound with chains. I can't be obedient to this call anymore. Of course, we see all throughout Scripture that even the most wicked and malevolent and ungodly plans of men continue to serve the purpose of accomplishing God's holy will. And the same was the case in Paul's own life. He was imprisoned for preaching the resurrection of Christ. And, and yet, as he speaks of his imprisonment in another letter, written roughly around the same time, the letter to the Philippians, notice how he describes his imprisonment. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12-14, to 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's chain were the means by which the Gospel was spread to the soldiers throughout the Roman Empire and ultimately to Caesar's own house. And it was the means that God used to stir up a kind of holy boldness among other preachers of the Gospel to do the very same thing. And so as Paul is thinking and And speaking of this very situation, now to Timothy, he says that he is bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. You are not going to stop that. This is an unashamed boldness, a confidence that can only result from a solid faith in the resurrection of Christ. Apart from the resurrection, the whole gospel is meaningless. The the whole task of of preaching and proclaiming the gospel is meaningless, pointless. The work of Christ on the cross is empty. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then he was nothing more than an influential teacher in the ancient past who unfortunately met a brutal end. If he has not then his death was no atonement for sins and there is no hope for eternal life. Perhaps we might even say there is no such thing as eternity. The whole of Christianity comes tumbling down apart from the resurrection of Christ. And that's exactly what we see when men who profess to be followers of Christ turn the resurrection into nothing more than a good idea. An ancient philosophy. Christianity becomes nothing more than a therapy session. Preaching is turned into nothing more than life coaching. Truth is relativized to whatever the individual wants it to be And no one stands on anything. Because there's nothing to stand on. There's no conviction. There's no boldness. There's no purpose. The logic of the very next verse, in verse 10, therefore, because of the resurrection, because of Christ, because the Word of God is not bound, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That whole logic is thrown out the door if the resurrection is not true. There is nothing worth enduring if Christ has not been raised. There is no risk that is worth taking if Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, the very work of preaching and evangelism the very gathering together to worship God is all in 
vain. We are gathered here for a pointless reason. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we do not have a message that can just be suggested. We do not have a perspective that can be offered to the world. We do not have an idea that is just put forward in the realm of other valid ideas. We do not have a piece of advice that would be good for people to follow to just better their lives. What we have in the Gospel of Christ is a message that must be heralded. It must be shouted and declared and preached. And it must be preached with conviction. Christ has been raised. We do not have a word that can be modified. And we do not have a right to determine which commands we will follow or which aspects of God's character we can prefer. The resurrection of Christ means that there is indeed a God who sits enthroned over all and He has sent His Son into the world to deal the decisive death blow to sin and death and to redeem sinners from their sin and to raise a banner of righteousness over the earth. He has drawn a line in the sand at the resurrection of Christ. And while the appointed time for the Son's return again awaits, He now commands men to choose which side of the sand they're going to stand on. Will they remain on the opposing side, continuing in foolish rebellion against the King who holds in His hands the keys of death and Hades? Or will they humble themselves and lay aside their weapons of rebellion and beat their swords into plowshares and submit themselves to the King who offers them life and redemption in return? Those are the two choices. Those are the only two choices that ever remain. And that remain before all of us. Some of you here this morning may think that it is fine for you to waver between these two choices. You're in an undecided camp. I'm not really sure if I can give myself fully to Christ. You have a whole list of reasons in your mind and in your heart why that is, why that can be justified day after day and year after year. I haven't been able to study the matter out fully. I have to examine all of these claims. I have to do my study and research Look at all of the other possible religions that are out there and the philosophies and ideas that exist. I've seen other professing Christians acting in ungodly ways. They've acted very wickedly towards others and towards me, perhaps. And so I'm just going to hold off with my own obedience to Christ because of the sin of others. My life is very busy at the moment. There's so many obligations. So many things that take up all of my time. Surely God is, is going to understand if I just delay a little bit longer. Maybe when I reach, Lord willing, retirement, I'll have more time to give to God. You have a whole list of reasons to remain at a distance from Christ and Perhaps you believe that God's gracious 
permit you to delay further. But you do not have time, friend. You do not own time. You are not Lord of time. You are not Lord over your own breath. And every second of delay and every moment that you wait to bow the knee fully to the Lordship of Christ over every single aspect of your life is an additional second of rebellion and more guilt that is just being heaped up against you. There is no straddling the fence with Christ. There's no halfway or half-hearted devotion to the Lord. There's no compromise. You are either in or you are out. You are either a soldier following the commands of your king. Or you are an enemy of the king at war against him in both heart and mind. And if you are an enemy, you stand presently under his judgment. The resurrection was an act of war. It was the mighty heel of the promised offspring of David crushing the head of the serpent. It was the victory of the power of the king over the serpent. The victor now has already declared his victory. Now it is as if he is giving his vanquished enemies an opportunity to lay down their swords and admit their And then in a surprising twist, He offers you for that submission an eternal reward of the very kingdom of God itself. Not to be just a lowly slave, poor servant with, with nothing to hope in. No, no, no. He offers you for your repentance. He he holds out for the taking. Life eternal and an inheritance of the kingdom of God. There is no shame, in other words, of admitting the defeat that has already occurred. The only wise decision that you have to make if you are outside of Christ and living in rebellion and disobedience to Him is to repent and to turn away from your sins and to turn to the King. And He will embrace you and give you the promise of eternal life and the hope of the resurrection with Him. I'll close with this. We read last week from Psalm 2. The psalmist speaks of all of these rebellious nations and and kings that vainly believed that they could cast off the, the will of God. And that they could rebel against His anointed King and succeed. Of course, it's all in vain because the Lord has established Christ as King in Zion, and He has exalted Him at His right hand. And at the very end of of that psalm, these nations are exhorted to kiss the Son, submit to Him, come to Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Throw aside your rebellion. And then it concludes, blessed are all who take. Now it is time.
refuge is being extended to you. The king is waiting patiently for you to come. And so my exhortation to you this day is to be that very thing. To not delay anymore and to come up with all manners of reasons why Christ is not here today. But to turn away from the sin that will kill you and to turn to him who will give you refuge. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are indeed incredibly grateful that sin and death did not have the last word. That the sin that so ruins us and ruins those around us, the sin that distorts your good creation and the good designs that you have had in creation, that the sin did not win. We are grateful that you in your mercy and kindness sent your son into the world to defeat sin and to conquer the grave by rising from the dead. And I pray again, Lord, for everyone who is here that you would be using the very same power of the resurrection to cause dead sinners to come alive. And that they would open their eyes to see Christ for who He truly is as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that in submitting themselves to Him, they would have life abundantly in His name. And I pray this all in Jesus' name.